Welcome to episode 53 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Lovin. I'm Brian Lovin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. This episode, we sat down with Sahil Lavingia. He's the CEO of Gumroad. He was the first designer at Pinterest. He's done a lot of stuff in a very short amount of time. Really talented dude. It's been really nice to pick his brain. And I've actually, we're going for a vibe of getting to like sit down and have coffee with these people. This conversation went very much like when I go and have coffee with him. So it was pretty cool to just like have that direct comparison. Great conversation. Uh, if you enjoy it, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. We also have a Slack team going. If you want to chat about uh, the shows in person or just ask questions, we're also doing instructive design critiques. Uh, to get on our Slack team, you can just DM us uh, at Design Details FM on Twitter or Spec FM. Uh, just send us your email address and we'll get you an invite right away. You can come chat. Before we get into the show, I want to thank our awesome sponsors. First up this week, Wake. So Wake is this really awesome tool for teams specifically. So it, it posts into Slack. So everyone knows when something new is up there, which is really, really awesome. It's very convenient. So people know, they just click on a link, they go in, they leave commentary, that commentary stays there. And you can you can track designs over time based on feedback. You can see, you can directly compare the feedback from the last version to the newest version of whatever you're building. It's an awesome way to share work in progress, essentially. They have uh, inline comments, so you can have discussions around specific screenshots or specific things you're working on and keep the conversation focused on the design. And of course, all those comments are going to be synced up on all of your devices and apps. You can post from your phone. You can post from the Mac app. There's a sketch extension. The sketch plugin is awesome. So you can just quickly share an artboard straight from sketch right Shift into it. Shift command W, done. It's fantastic. I, I use that extension so, so much. Like before I save any single time, I have autosave turned off on sketch because that's the only way to fly. Before I save, I upload it to Wake yep. every single time. And we aren't just saying this. We actually are using Wake for uh, a spec public critique. Um, so if you're interested in that, we do use Wake. It's uh, called Inspect. Inspect. Um, to do that, just get on our Slack team. But Wake is really an awesome place to just have great discussions around design, give feedback. Uh, if you go to wake.io, you can sign up for free. They have a 30-day free trial. It's great for teams. It's only like 12 bucks a month after that. So they just launched yesterday. Pretty great. Super cool that we get to be like their first sponsorship. We love the tool. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. So go to wake.io. Our second sponsor this week, Wake. Wake, huh? Pretty crazy. So Wake is, if you haven't heard of them before, they're a private space to share and discuss design work with your team. Wake lets you upload uh, screenshots, work in progress. You can also shoot photos um, so you can share sketches and whiteboard sessions. Easily take screenshots. They have a sketch plugin that lets you quickly share work in progress from sketch. Uh, and then all this goes to uh, an app where people can comment on the work, uh, have discussion around it, give feedback, give critique. Bryn uses it at Sidewire. I used it at Buffer, and we're both currently using it for spec with our latest uh, venture called Inspect, which is a design critique that we're doing. Public critiques with your favorite designers. When I told Chris about it, he jumped on it right away. He's like, yeah, I'll give it to you. Just just go do it. They're being very supportive of the community. They just want designers to be better. They want people to look like know that they care which is huge chris is a great designer and he's he's the founder of it so you can tell that it's built for designers by designers really great product and you can try wake for free for your own team uh for 30 days so if you just go to wake.io you can enter your email address and sign up and get started with your team it's a really amazing service and we're so glad to have them as a sponsor you should also check out the video which we'll put in the show notes because that video is fantastic the one will wilkinson did oh my god great video thanks again to wake and with that, let's get into episode 53 with Sahil Livingia. 
listeners requested that we have our guests introduce themselves so they can put a, a, a name to a voice since they cannot, in fact, see us. Interesting. Would, would you mind uh, explaining who you are a little bit? Yeah. My name is Sahil, Sahil Lavingia. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Gumroad, uh, which strives to help creators earn a living doing what they love to do. And we do that by basically building software for them so that they can like sell their work directly to their audiences, um, all the way from like getting set up, talking to their audience, to actually selling like the digital asset, whether it be a film, a book, a movie, a documentary, a comedy special, a comic strip, etc. Yeah, I've bought a bunch of Photoshop brushes and things like that through it. So, from from Kyle, Kyle Webster. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it's crazy, you know. He's yeah, no, he's one of my favorite creators. He's it's a, it's a, just such an interesting case of using Gumroad because it wasn't mm-hmm. really like where would he have sold them before? Nowhere. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, actually, when I interviewed with you guys, that was the example you sent me. Was oh really? His work, yeah. Awesome. Also like a design challenge. That's pretty funny. Yeah, he's he's in my top like five creators. He's incredible. Yeah, so yeah, good. He's so good. And like now I see his brushes, like I'll notice his brushes being used when I'm like reading like The Economist and I'll see an illustration. I'll be like, boom. Crazy. So what are you guys working on now at Gumroad or maybe something you've recently launched that would be indicative of where you're going with the platform? Yeah, so I think Gumroad, basically the focus of the company is it's around this set of features that we call audience. And basically, I think so. So Gumroad in the past has been focused on building like basically commerce tools for creators, and I think that works super, super well. You look like you look at someone like Kyle, and he just connects with his audience in like a very good way. It just feel it feels special. Unfortunately, like a lot of creators don't have that scale, and so as a company, we want to basically figure out how can we actually give many, many, many more creators that have the creative talent and have the drive, but may not necessarily have that audience yet how do we teach them how to go get that and then once they're ready and they've built up that audience they can use the rest of the stuff that we've built already at gumroad to like close the loop on that and become like the next you know the next generation of kyle's and 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 people like that and so that's like a big focus for us is is how do we help people and teach people how to actually build audiences from scratch how do you do that like if i'm a new designer and i want to sell photoshop brushes how do i how do you stand out yeah, I mean, I I think it's case by case. So for someone who wants to be like like Kyle, I, the first thing I would probably do would be to email Kyle and be like, "Hey, I've made this cool thing. Like, what do you think? You know, like basically use someone else's audience to kind of you know, jumpstart your own." But it's it's super case by case. Like the way that we think about it is, we basically think that in in we have this thing called the Small Product Lab, which was an experiment that we did two months ago and and turned out really well, which is basically like a crash course in building an audience and actually launching a product. The goal being you come in with an idea of something that you wanted to make and a very specific group of people that you wanted to sell it to. And we would basically tell you how to get from there to, you know, the 10th or 11th day, actually having your product in like a form that was sellable and then having a small audience or a big audience, depending on how successful you were, that you could actually tell about this product too. And that was just super, super successful. And it's, it's not like, you know, totally formulaic but it but there is like a sort of a, a template and a, a framework that you can use to kind of build your audience just like i built my audience just like you guys have built your audience with design details it's different every single time and in every single context but it has very similar sure you know very similar things that just like you switch out podcast for book or like or what have you designers for do you think that everybody can have an audience and what i mean by that is like at some point does it become 
like everybody's shouting for everybody's attention. I mean, that would be the argument now, right? Yeah, I think that I think everyone that has the ability to make things that are potentially useful for other people should have an audience. Sure. Um, I I think the way that you solve the shout problem is you just limit the noise. You figure out how to communicate with the people that you care about and 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 that care about you and only those so only those kind of lines in the network exist because uh, you know if you yeah if you're you're right if if everyone kind of sees everyone else's stuff that doesn't work that just it's like you know brave new world style where like people are just like inundated with information and um none of it is that useful anymore in that in the, at that scale but i think you you fix that by just getting better and better and better about like filtering that i, I think with gumroad and you know it's still early days but i think with gumroad and and what we've seen is that it's already filtered by like you approach people, you you know, you approach the world saying, hey, I want to write this book on how to make vegan recipes, for example. And boom, like you let your audience self-select themselves, right? Because people that don't like that, like eating steaks probably don't want to follow you. And that's totally cool and mm-hmm. totally fine. And I think that's kind of the way you do it is you be very upfront with like the audience that you're looking for. So Gumroad has always been it seems to me super simple in that it's like a page where you can go and buy digital goods. Are you moving on to like physical goods or like marketplace style stuff where I can follow other sellers and transact more within a Gumroad ecosystem versus just like going to a, a selling page? We definitely want to build out the Gumroad ecosystem, not directly into a marketplace per se, because I think there are a lot of inefficiencies with building a marketplace and potentially like we would like to solve the problems that a marketplace solves, but hopefully in a better way. Um, so for example, like helping creators gain exposure, yeah. especially new creators that may not have an audience already, getting people lift so once they're successful, we can kind of make them more successful over time and kind of keep their sales going past their launch. Definitely want to start helping creators that sort of made an impact with digital stuff, self physical stuff as yeah. well. So we started doing that earlier this year. We mm-hmm. opened that up. So we started doing it with like the music vertical, for example, because there's so many musicians that also have merchandise. They, they're brands, right? Mm-hmm. And so they have like merchandise that they want to sell alongside their music. And so we kind of started with that and have now opened it up to everybody. Kind of like, an, you know, an extension of your question, should everyone have an audience? Like, should everyone have a brand, right? And like, I think if, it, if, if you can get like the marginal cost of making a new thing very, very low for the creator, then I think yes, right? Like if you're, you know, there are probably some percentage of Kyle's fans that, would love Kyle Webster t-shirt, for example. And if it's incredibly easier, easy for him to do that, and like, you know, some service, you know, whether it be Gumroad or Gumroad in partnership with another service can basically automate that process entirely. All he has to do is make like the landing page to right. sell the shirt. Like, why not? Um, and I think that's kind of where a lot of, you know, with Teespring and a lot of these things where the world is kind of moving. It's getting easier and easier. Like capital becomes the only asset that the world has social capital because everything else is like trending towards being free or super 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 cheap and so like people more and more are trying to like build capital both you know by like literally buying property or you know building social capital making a brand or like gaining respect within a certain community get that clout score that clout (laughs) score exactly it's an interesting segue into to writing because seems like you started building your social capital pretty early, right? You were writing a lot of blog posts. I'm always curious to hear people's stories of like how blogging got them started or got their first entry into this world. Yeah. And yeah, I, by the way, I love the use of social capital as, as a phrase for this, even though it sounds a little bit like buzzwordy, buzzwordy, <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit of Valley, uh, Silicon Valley, I mean, <laughs> a little uh, valley. but 
I think it's true. I mean, at the end of the day, like capital is just like things that you own that you can like at some point sell for other, you know, different formats of value. I I agree with you. Somehow it also feels like people become things to use. And like these are followers that I can basically abuse to make money as opposed to abuse and utilize are different things. It is. It It is a little bit of a blurry line. Like utilize people. That's true. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of how yeah. the, the marketplace works. Well, so so this reminds you me... You could phrase it differently well, as well. It doesn't change what it is. Great way to get into writing, actually, because this reminds me that like sort of internal dilemma, which I think a lot of people, especially people that make art, things that they consider art first and businesses second, go through. So there's this author, John Green, who's the guy that did Fault in Our Stars. Phenomenal author. He's a very famous YouTuber with his brother called the Vlog Brothers, and... He did a talk, and I think the, one of the first things he talks about is this idea of selling out, right? So XO one is that the one you're? Uh, this is one at VidCon. Okay, it seems like with given the yeah. topics that XO XO does, probably talks about it there too. But this idea of selling out, which is like people would basically email him and you know at reply him on Twitter, being like, "Hey, like you, this is you know many many years ago. Like you never talk about your books on Twitter. Like I I follow you because I read a book and I loved it, and I want I want to like get into your brain a little bit more." And all I hear about is like your life in Indiana with your kids and your wife and all this stuff. And I'm boring. (laughs) And, and, you know, his reaction to that was like, well, I don't want to like feel like a sellout. I don't want to be constantly selling my book to people, right? And exploit them. And people are like, well, you're not. Like, I read your book. I want that from you. You know, I want to pay you money for your words or what have you. Please exploit me. (laughs) Yeah. And so at this talk, he was basically like, you know, because he was speaking to a bunch of YouTubers that go through the same sort of moral dilemma almost of like, no, it's totally cool. Like the best thing you could do is charge for the things that you like to make because then you can keep just, making. You can just keep making stuff and you don't have to be like, okay, I'm going to make stuff and then I'm going to spend like four hours on, on the phone with Unilever and I'm going to get them to put ads all over my stuff so I can like keep making stuff. And so if you can get a group of people that, you know, are willing to pay for your stuff, one, like that's probably a good sign that the stuff you're making is good. You know, maybe not necessarily useful because I don't know if reading, you know, fantasy is always useful, but like, you know, fun or valuable in some fashion. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, like imagine an, an author and like the book was free. Right? You could like go to the bookstore and pick it up for free. But like every other page had like an ad for something in it. That would be super weird. That would feel like a violation of like our relationship. Isn't that a magazine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is a magazine. That is a magazine. And it kind of sucks. Uh, not the greatest. And, you know, and then you have things like off screen, which you can just buy and the, there's no ads in them. That's kind of, you know, a segue to writing. I think like, yeah, you, there is a little bit of like, oh, am I like building this audience because I can like exploit them at some point? But, and maybe the answer is yes, but like I'm exploiting them by like giving them products that they want to use soon, right? Like I'm not writing the words purely because, you know, they'll follow me and then I can like get some amount of money from them or whatever. Like I'm writing the words because I think they're useful for me to think through. Yeah. And then they're useful for them to read. That's the other side of that, I think, is that people who write with the intention of building an audience to exploit inevitably fail. But the people who write because they enjoy writing, they want to refine their thoughts, and it also provides value to people, end up getting the biggest audience. It's like... I think that's the key point, is you have to provide value. The intention behind it, and yeah. Yeah, well, it's like... We're we're pretty good at seeing through like the facade of people who are clearly writing. I believe that's called bullshit. Bullshit. (laughs) Bullshit, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, so, so Bezos has this term, I think it's called like the like the missionary mercenary dilemma or paradox or problem, mm-hmm. which is basically people ask him, like, how do you make a bunch of money? And he's like, you don't, you, you don't, you try not to, 
you look at like Larry Page or Steve Jobs or basically anybody who's made a bunch of money, Zuckerberg, like none of them were like, I'm going to build a huge business. They solve a problem because they think it's important to solve. And then they end up being put in a position where like the best way to do that is to build a business that ends up being very valuable because their core problem that they solved was super important to solve. And then you look at all the people that are like, I want to make a bunch of money. So I'm going to start a billion dollar company. It's not going to work. Yeah, typically. I don't know of any examples at least, right? And so it's weird because like if you want to make a bunch of money, you're not going to. And if you don't want to, you might. Well, you don't know of any examples because they don't. They don't exist. Yeah, they don't exist. And so, yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of it is like, yeah, do you love to do it, right? Like, so if, if you're doing something because you think it can make you some amount of money at some point, you probably don't love to do that thing that much. And so if you're not gaining traction immediately or it's not, like you're not seeing the results of that soon, which, you know, every one of these examples, even though they ended up being successful, took, you know, seven plus years to sort of turn into something. You're going to stop doing it because you're like, this sucks. Yeah. I'm not going anywhere. And it takes like 10 years, you know, to build an audience. You So many stories of J.K. Rowling, et cetera, like, you know, making cool stuff and not getting that traction. And the reason they kept going was not because they were like, oh, well, if I do it one more day, I can like make a billion bucks. It's like, no, I want to, I want everybody in the world to read this book because I think it's important. So what about for you? Because you did start writing young. You haven't been blogging as much recently. Yeah, I've slowed down a little bit though. I've tried to do, you know, one or two Mm -hmm. medium posts a quarter or something like that. Um, It's a very businessy way to think about it. (laughs) I know. I start thinking in quarters. quarters, (laughs) Well, yeah, this is uh, one of the, one of the symptoms of being a CEO and like, you know, OKRs and quarters and board meetings, you'd start thinking in terms of quarters. Very strange. I could have said season, but I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I mean, I think a lot of my writing is like internal now. You know, like a lot of what I write is things that I send to the team or a specific person, you know, uh, internal memo about something or like what have you that like hits my quota of like creative writing in a way. You know, like I do these monthly recaps for the company in which I like kind of go through everything that's happened that month and how the company's tracking and what we need to do better and what we should be thinking about. And those are like a lot of my exercise, I guess. Also, like just being, I don't want to sound a little annoying, but like being a little bit more famous than I was when I was like, you know, an 18 year old kid in school. I feel like I have more, like I want to put things out in the world that are going to be received pretty well. It's a little more uncomfortable putting out something that I'm not like, that hasn't been like edited and reviewed by somebody when I have like potentially like, you know, 24 other human beings that like rely on Gumroad and its reputation for their job. So I just, it, there's a little bit more of a, it's like innovators dilemma or something, you know, you've like become a little bit more successful. And so you're like a little more wary to put the things out there that made you successful in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, it's a dilemma for a reason. It's funny you talk about fame because you got a lot of attention when you were 18, right? Yeah. That's when... That was the that was like the the inflection point, yeah. I guess. Can we was, talk about, or could you tell that story of why that was an inflection point? Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing I did, I mean, the biggest thing I did was like I, I started blogging and tweeting and using Hacker News all at the same time with a very like core intent of like being someone in the community that had some ounce of respect. So I grew up in Singapore and then I moved to LA to go to school. And to me, that was like, oh, I'm in California. I'm like relatively close to people that make things. When I was in Singapore, there was no point in like having a reputation because I couldn't really, you know, use that to like grab coffee with people and learn more stuff because I was the only person in Singapore it felt like at the time that cared about, you know, Objective-C or, you know, the iPhone SDK or anything like that. But when I moved to the US, I was like, okay, this is like, I'm going to start doing this. 
so yeah, so I started blogging and, you know, putting comments on Hacker News and just like, just with no real intent besides like, I just wanted to gain respect from the people that I had respect for. Mm-hmm. And I just did that. I was in school, so I had a bunch of time. That led to offers from companies, you know, asking for me to like help out on some project, one of which was Pinterest, which I ended up joining full time, making their iPhone app and doing a bunch of design for them as well. But it all started because I was just like putting myself in like random thoughts that I had out there. You know, I would like be walking somewhere and have this idea that like math has some relation to this idea of like innovation or like iterative development. And I would just like write a three paragraph post on it, put on Hacker News, and it would, you know, get on the front page and people would be like, oh, this is like an interesting, weird way to think about this. That's kind of how it started. So Brendan and I have each talked about wanting to like blog more. And I think sometimes it's easy to get stuck in like this fear of I have this thought, but I don't want to put it out there. A, because I don't want to be wrong. Uh, B, because I might change my mind on it in the future. So like, how did you think about that when you were doing stuff? Like, did you ever have that fear of, I don't know, putting out something that you weren't going to be proud of later? And it sounds like you got over it if, if that's the case. But how did you go about that? Yeah, I mean, I've read more recently read some of the stuff that I wrote back then. And there's totally things that I think are stupid, you know, and hopefully I'm not being judged for things I wrote like five years ago or something. You are. Um, or, it's the internet. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> we all know. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think at that point I was just so, I, I, there was like probably some sense of like euphoria where I could like write something and like a bunch of people I knew were going to read it. And that value of that was so much higher than like managing any reputation I had before that, that I was just like churning through stuff. And there's a, a really good quote I read recently by this guy who basically says in this, Stephen King in his book on writing called On Writing. And his, his recommendation for people that want to get into writing, you know, kind of like get over this fear of like, is it wrong or not that great is just do it and like write a lot because it is going to suck. And like the way it doesn't suck is you do it like 50 times over. Um, but he has this one quote, which is you basically need to be moving fast enough to outrun your self-doubt, which I thought was like a really interesting way to think about it. And, you know, kind of to tie it back into startups, like, you know, it's like Facebook's move fast and break things. You just have to move really fast. If you're moving fast enough, like you don't, you don't give yourself the time to like even say, well, should I be doing this or not? You just keep going and put it out there and see what happens. And I think people that are good at doing that and can develop that ability end up being really successful. Like if, if J.K. Rowling wrote seven books that were terrible and then wrote Harry Potter, I don't think that matters. Like no one's going to be like, oh, Harry Potter's not nearly as good because like her old stuff. Is she's shit. kind <laughs> of a hack. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great way to think about it but i think people especially artists and creators have this idea that people do that that people say this person is as good as the average output and that's not how it works people are basically judged on the best thing they ever did right like no one judges steve jobs for next or the newton uh, or people do but it doesn't matter i think he came back and killed the newton (laughs) i think that's for good reason (laughs) this sounds like sort of a fundamental problem then that you're trying to address at gumroad if you're wanting more creators to like start selling their stuff is addressing sort of that starting up fear, right? Yeah. So we, we, yeah, we did this thing called the small product lab, Yeah, right. which we talked a little bit about. Is that available online by the way? Yeah. Just gumroad.com slash small product lab. Cool. No dashes or anything. The messaging around that is like start small. Mm-hmm. This is like 10 days of your life in which you're spending some amount of time working to a launch of a product, but pick something tiny. Yeah. Because your goal is not the product. Your goal is to launch something. Just have it out there. And it turns out like people will do something and then they'll make 10 grand. (laughs) 
And it's insane. And the products are super high quality because they're always way too high quality. Because anyone who's a creator, it's going to probably ship too late anyways and put too much effort in. And so like the bias is always like ship earlier, ship sooner. Because And, and the, the minute you do that, the minute you frame the goal around shipping and not a quality product, because you can guarantee the quality product because these people will do that regardless. So like get them to focus more on getting something out there and getting started. And so we use the term start, start small. Mm-hmm which worked really well because it's just like a very clear is this small and you look at like a 17 page short story and you're like okay that's pretty small and then you look at like a 200 page novel and you're like that's not and then also the time the fact that like in 10 days you're launching this thing forces you to pick something that you know you can get done before that and that's like the best thing that i ever learned like most of my blog posts were like 15 20 minutes of me just like writing a train of thought going to the bathroom coming back doing some editing and proofreading and then hitting publish yeah and I never would do more than that, ever. Does that mindset translate to how you're building Gumroad? Or are you guys at the point now where you have to think a little bit bigger and don't move quite as fast? We definitely don't move quite as fast. Um, and I think that's fine. You know, that's a, as long as it's a conscious decision, just like I don't think Facebook is moving as fast as they were, you know, five, 10 years ago. Because you have more to lose when you make a mistake. But I also think that you should still be moving uncomfortably fast. Like it should always be uncomfortable. I think... Part of moving fast and breaking things, I think like the part of that's missing from that is moving fast and fixing things. And typically like the assumption is if you can move fast and break things, you can probably also move faster, faster because you have the urgency to actually fix the things that you broke. And I've, I'm still, I think, quite good at being like, hey, let's ship this product. Definitely test it. Make sure there's no bugs. Write some good tests for it, but put it out there and then react to it. Don't polish too soon. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we've learned recently is that you can like get something out there and then launch it. And then those things can be actually separate events. And so a lot of people, they really care about the quality of a product when it launches, not necessarily when it ships. And so what we started doing more recently is we'll launch or we'll ship a feature and then we'll basically turn it on for certain people or turn it on even at some points for everybody and then wait one or two weeks because we have, you know, some editorial cycle to actually talk about the feature publicly and Mm -hmm. get, you know, that's when like there's like a you know it's frozen in time right because there's a screenshot on the blog of how that feature looks and so the more you can kind of do ahead of that time uh to like refine the feature the better off you are and also it makes people feel more comfortable with putting something out there that isn't necessarily perfect because you know you have a week or two to kind of react yeah, you to don't, feedback you don't have to blog about it the day that it goes on the internet yeah and almost always you when you do that it's not good like things are going to go wrong. Like if, if you deploy and then write the, you know, and then hit publish on the blog post, it's, I, I don't, can't think of very many situations in which that went totally smooth. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, well, this is broken now because, or, you know, we didn't test it with this full production data or like, oh, we saw this 500 or whatever. Like, yeah, it, things always go wrong. No, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And so you might as well like push it out there. And, you know, one of the nice things about having like, a lot of this non-product stuff is like we have a cycle of like we know the next basically six weeks of content that's going to go out on our blog so we can say okay well this is done but like we don't need to actually talk about it until this date and it gives us a little bit more flexibility on that front but it's still a struggle i think it's so easy to default especially as your company does better and better like to not move as fast because you're growing regardless your incremental improvements of the product aren't driving growth immediately but it's i think it's something that you have to fight mm-hmm. because i think it's one of those things that like you don't really notice it as it slows you down, but then like half a year later, you haven't shipped anything in, in months. Just as an aside, how big is the team? We're 25. 
24, 25 people around there. How many designers? Four designers. Wow. Including me. Wow. So yeah, th- you three full time and then I'm I'm kind of a I'd yeah, I probably didn't mention that, but I am a designer. Every time we discuss <laughs> that, uh like when we would go to for coffee, you'd be like three including myself, four including myself. And I think <laughs> like, that's so oh my god. <laughs> that's great. No, uh so you've done engineering, you've done design. I, I imagine you still do both on some level, and then now you run a company. How have the engineering and design um, experience like affected how you built the company? Has that led you to build the team differently? Has that led you to approach problems differently? Do you think? Yeah, it, definitely. I think you know probably some good things and some bad things come from from that. You know, for example, I think I have a little bit more perspective on like how a designer thinks to a problem, how an engineer thinks to a problem, and so I have a little bit more empathy for why did this take so long? Well, it took so long. You know, they can say, "Oh, well, I didn't think we had to do this migration." And then, boom, I understand that context. I'm like, okay, makes sense. Whereas maybe someone who doesn't have that context may not get that entirely. And, you know, I'm sure there's equivalent on the design side. So I think there's a lot of good. I think in general, it's probably just more like empathy and sympathy for like the role and like their job. The bad is probably like it's easy for me sometimes to do things instead of get someone else to do them, especially if they're better at it than that than I am, which is, should be typical of most people at the company. Delegating is super hard. And, it's one yeah. of those skills that you, it takes so long to and figure And the out. best way to delegate is to not even be able to do the thing, right? So like it's very easy for me to delegate something very complex on the engineering side because I don't know how to do it, but it's a lot harder for me if I can just like, you know, fix the bug myself. And so, you know, you have to make that call on a case-by-case basis, but it's definitely something that I struggle with is making sure that like I'm utilizing my time the best and making sure that like I have my priorities and that like I can totally fix that bug if, you know, I know it's not going to have repercussions later because, you know, I might fix a bug and then that reappears later and then I, I'm like in the middle of something and I can't get out of it for a few hours and someone else has to clean up my mess or whatever. I want to avoid that as much as possible. But I think over time, you know, now it's been like two or three years sort of, you know, managing a team of designers and engineers that have gotten better at being like, okay, you, you solve that problem. And making sure that, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, Gumroad is a team of people that moves as one unit and the world, the outside world judges Gumroad as an atomic entity, not like, oh, Sahil fixed that bug really fast. Right. And so it's important to, like, always optimize for the team and the team scale and the team speed versus my own. So what is your day-to-day now? My day-to-day is normally, it's, I mean, it's pretty random. A lot of it is reactive. or not necessarily reactive, but, like, helping people. Yep. I think a big part of my job is making sure that people are able to do their best work. And so giving them input, giving them advice, telling them to talk to people. So, you know, one thing that I have is I have a lot of context on Gumroad. You know, I've spent the most time thinking about it. And then I, I have a good sense of what everyone is working on. That's the other thing that as a designer engineer, I kind of know what everyone is working on. So if you tell me, hey, I'm working on this new product problem, I can be like, hey, you should talk to Amir because he's thought about that problem six months ago when he built this other feature. I'm a good router. And then there's, you know, the the one-off things, right? So like recruiting, if we're looking for a specific role, fundraising, if we're looking to fundraise, doing uh, interviews with press for a press release or press, like a press cycle. But it's very, like it's, a lot of it is just being there. Like having, one thing that I was very bad at was I would have my entire day blocked off for certain things. And I realized that like you should have, I think Jeff Wiener is the one that like told me this in a public forum. You should have like two to four hours a day. That's like, it's blocked off to be unblocked off. Like it's like in your calendar to not, so people can't put other things in your calendar. And it's just time for you to like 
think about problems a little farther ahead of when you need to and be able to be there if like, you know, there's some issue that you can contribute to. Um, and that's kind of how I, I look at my role a lot. And then, you know, if, if necessary, I can turn into a designer or an engineer on a specific problem or project if needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so like certain sprints, I'll be like, awesome. Let's, you know, like recently we did a designer cleanup day. So engineers do cleanup days quite often, I think, in, in certain companies, which are basically like, you know, blocks of time in which like every engineer focuses on like fixing bugs or fixing like tech, you know, getting rid of technical debt because otherwise it just builds up over time. You ne- you never, you're always like focused on something. You never think about the sort of the five, 10% cruft. But designers actually very rarely do them, I think, um, especially if they're not writing code all the time. So that that's maybe one thing that I think having a design and engineering background, I can like be like, oh, this is stuff that engineers do really well that designers don't and vice versa. Not because the engineers and designers themselves, but because those practices and those crafts mm-hmm. evolved in a certain way. And so one of the things we do with the design team now is like cleanup days on the design side where we'll just like go through all our CSS cleanup stuff, add linters, delete a bunch of old stuff that we don't use anymore you know make a bunch of pages mobile friendly um dry some code so this is like a very one of my favorite examples of this is this concept of dry Mm -hmm. which in engineering uh typically you know means don't repeat yourself so if you have two blocks of code that do the same thing something's off uh and the longer those code blocks like the more is off right so if you have like 30 lines of code here and 30 lines of code here you should probably make a function and call them in both places for example um but you can apply that to every single skill ever you can apply that to design in so many ways right like you should probably have one button and like subsets of that button styling but like i'm blown away with how many people don't even know that terminology of dry Mm. so that's something that every single person at the company knows because it's so important to me it's like you know if you do something and then someone else does something gumrich dry like we need to figure out a way so that work doesn't get repeated because in general repetition is just inefficiency yeah it seems like there's a really broad trend especially talking about things like functional CSS, this like move for designers to start thinking of everything like really modularly. Yeah. So we've just started doing that a lot. It's totally awesome and it (laughs) works so much better. But it's a thing that, yeah, it's like, you know, designers have never really thought about things that way. Uh, And so it's a a task to like get people to think in that way. And we actually have a bunch of people, like all our designers write code and are very good at like, you know, the person that started, Alex, started rewriting a lot of our code, our new code to, like, be m- way more modular. Alex the, Hertz, right? Alex Hertz, yeah, who's phenomenal. He's amazing. And, yeah, so he's, he's like, kind of led the charge on a lot of that stuff. And it's been super awesome. And it, it's cool because it has, like, a parallel with engineering. So, like, engineers can kind of very easily understand the CSS code because it is written in a way that makes sense to the way that they normally think about stuff, like inheritance and classes and things like that. And it's it's kind of cool to be able to see that. Like, you know, but even even then, like, I think there's like still one of the things that I've noticed is like, there's this like weird dearth between like, you know, designers are super good at like HTML, CSS is kind of their limit typically. Um, and then for engineers, you know, they get Ruby, awesome, database stuff, awesome, logic stuff, awesome, JavaScript, pretty awesome. But there's like this like weird middle of like getting the design and like the UI and like all that interaction stuff. It's still like, it's just like a very strange, like a lot of it is just like designer engineer pair to it and work, you know, pair on it and do it together. And we've, that's something that I've spent a lot, a little bit more time on recently. So like the other thing that I spent a lot of my time on is like process. How do I get people to do better work, you know, faster and not just by pushing people, but actually implementing processes that make that stuff easier to do. And so one of the things I've tried to do is structure that better 
So like establish like, okay, you know, in the stack, right, which, you know, at the top is like visual design and at the bottom is like, you know, the database schema uh, and, you know, all the steps in between, like where should the designer spend most of their time? Where should the engineer spend most of their time? Where should that work be done together in parallel? And these are all defaults, right? So that you can totally override them if you're like, oh, well, I actually know how to do the JS for this because it's super easy and I all have, you know, awesome, the designer should do it. And, but setting the defaults, I think, is is a huge part of process. Just like setting like the guidelines. Like if you have no opinion, this is the way you should be doing it probably because we've seen that works the best. If you have an opinion, totally override that. I think when people hear all these um, tales of Steve Jobs and his detail orientation, they take that as customize everything. Going back to the, the dry bit a little bit, I think they're like, everything needs to be unique to its purpose. And that's yeah. Just, that's just not the way it is. So if you set a sensible default and then just iterate so if it's a, a button you want to call out make it red instead of like white like that makes sense just do things in subtle pairs based on sensible defaults yeah i think that one of the things i've noticed about like really good both engineers and designers and basically everybody is that they're really good at fitting into the system that already exists mm-hmm. and so like you know someone will say you know we'll see this with the design challenges that we send out to candidates where someone will like take uh you know we'll take like a uh problem and then totally solve it really well but like totally outside gumroad's three years of history or four years of history where like they'll solve it but it's like skeuomorphic and like it it looks totally different and like if our goal is like you should have you know you should design in a way that like makes it look like it we could have shipped it tomorrow you know and it would work with the with the gumroad brand Um, on the engineering side the, the analogy might be like when you open a pull request for you know some open source project you should match the styling of the rest of that code like the easiest way to get rejected is you don't do that because why would you not do that? And like that's something that I am very mindful of because I just I think it's like a form of respect almost that like if this is the way things are done, you should follow those things and you should like maybe be exceptional in these like one or two points. But the rest of the stuff, like it's a talent, I think, to be able to like look like you just followed the existing standards mm-hmm. perfectly. You know, so many times people will, you know, outside the company, of course, will like suggest, you know, a rewrite of something and like it's, they'll do it without knowing the full context. And like, I remember one of the first times like I, I met with Alex, you know, we were talking about how, like, how would you approach this like redesign of this one page on Gumroad? And the first thing he says is like, well, ignoring all this other stuff that I also think is not ideal, but like, I totally understand it's going to take like way longer to fix that. Let's, we can focus on this part. And even then I was like, okay, awesome. This guy thinks very clearly about one, like how hard it is to change things. And so like, let's focus on the things, you know, the easy wins first and then reevaluate if those other wins are still worth doing. But then too, just like emotional, you know, ability, like he understands EQ, right? Like he under, he just understands like how to give feedback well and how to like approach a problem, stuff like that. That seems like one of the big, you could fall on two sides of like the unsolicited redesign arguments is like yeah. on one side, it's a great thing to explore and come up with the concepts. But when you're proposing it, it's like almost the criticism against it is like it's disrespectful to the people who have like have the full context of how hard it is to to change things yeah. and solve problems and people do it well right like people you know typically in the description they'll be like hey i know that i have zero context on this and yeah. like they've thought way more about this problem than i have but i wanted to experiment some with ideas. like yeah. some idea and like and then there are other people that are like facebook sucks this is how it would be awesome <laughs> and then you're like mm, mm, probably not or yeah i think there was one on designer news a little while back that was saying that sketch looked out of date and should look new and have like a dark ui and stuff and it's Part of the beauty of Sketch is that it's just system default. Like it's so yeah. bare bones. It's yeah. great. 
but it, it just cracked me up. Those like, are like, those no, are like the be best dark. apps for iPhone too. Like the ones that I don't have to think. I can download a new app and use it perfectly because it turns out it just looks like the address book app. Yeah. But for this new purpose. And I totally think you should pick a few battles and, you know, that really matter to your experience and your product. But the rest of it, you should always default to the to, to the defaults. Like they're there for a reason yeah. and people are expect them. And Do you think that that applies... Uh, I think of like the current Pinterest iOS app mm-hmm. and it's not default at all, right? Yes. But, yeah. But it's, it's pretty... probably one of the best, a very well-designed mobile application. Yeah. I mean, I think so, you know, I, I deserve zero credit for what's out there today because it's very different from like the, probably the thing that I shipped, I think was way more sort of system defaults. Okay. Um, but I think one of the things that Pinterest does well is they do everything really, 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 really well. So if, especially if you decide to like go away from the defaults, you need to do as good of a job as all the defaults would have yeah. done, right? Mm-hmm. So like things like simple things like when I tap the status bar, it should go to the top of a table. Mm-hmm. Like that's a that's a th- and the minute you override with your own table view and you don't do that, like you're dropping functionality that was free that like Apple gave you for free that you're now rewriting. So if you like Pinterest probably has the time and the and the talent to like you re-implement all of these things that people expect, then awesome. But like, if you're not, I, I I think about it like animations in our web app. Like if you're adding an animation and it's at all regressive, like it's slightly laggy in some browser, it's not worth doing anymore. Like it has to just be purely better because it, otherwise it's just not worth it. Like what's the point in spending like 15 hours on something if it's like better in one browser and worse in every other or whatever. Like it should be so clearly better than the default. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Sketch is a great example of like, like it's just so much easier to use the system default. Then, by the way, when like you know the new El Capitan comes out, like nothing breaks, and like you know whoever built that like new crazy look. new app that like has all these amazing animations and custom buttons and stuff. Yeah, it's gonna take him. He's gonna have to like rewrite the app. Yeah, maybe not, but a lot of the time, yeah, like you d- you don't get any of those those benefits for free. I would say the only counter argument is if it's done well, like you're saying, like the the Pinterest of the world, and I think of someone probably even Photoshop or Spotify, like where you take the UI and that's part of your brand. Yeah. Like that's when it matters. Like if Spotify had. Yeah. And you can pick those battles at scale, right? Like you can like Snapchat, I would say is the best example of someone that doesn't follow the defaults. They don't can follow get rid any of, default can, ever. I don't no. think, I don't think they've seen an iPhone. before. <laughs> <laughs> and they can get away with it because they can, one, it's part of their brand. I think is that like, they have this like weird, a lot of these it's like weird ironic designs. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. It's like it's like if your friend built an app and was like, "You should use this," and turns out a hundred million people ended up using it. Um, but that you know, one you can get away with it when you're at scale, right? So you can like, there you basically every time you go away from the defaults, there's friction because like every new user has to like learn this new thing that they thought they knew, but turns out they didn't. And that's a lot easier if they have all their friends being like, "Dude, get the hell on Snapchat," than it would be if like you're like the first user of this app and you're like why the hell do I have to learn this like weird interaction to like take a photo or something or take a video? But I think then the other thing that Snapchat does well is they really, really, really think through every single weird decision that they make. So I think they have a lot of these like non-default behaviors, but they're thought through really, really, really well. Like for example, like the taking a video on, I think makes a lot of sense because it, it kind of forces the default to become videos. Like there's no the amount of work to take a new video is to, like literally less work. Like you don't have There's to no take toggle, your thumb after, right. off the thing. 
and they have a lot of built-in like problem solving within that like you can see how much time you have left and you like all these things that are i think are really cool and these red so like red is like you know the metaphor for recording typically even things like the push notification that they send out that says like you know saho is typing dot 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 i think that's super smart because it forces people to like open snapchat before they finish typing the message so then you can have like a much more real-time conversation and then you could also by the way you like it's it's basically a plug for their other feature which is like the live chat the chat yeah. the the video thing right because they i'm sure that went up astronomically and it also forces like more authenticity on the typer because you're only gonna you know that the minute you start typing that thing you know so you're not gonna like spend like five minutes editing the message or whatever and sure, it's kind of annoying, and you're like, "Why is Snapchat the only app that sends me like notifications for like a non-action, like something I cannot see yet?" I think they've probably thought much harder than I have about these problems, and they Wait. were, you know, the cost benefits were were done. Do they notify sense. you when someone starts typing to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. I don't know. I use Snapchat. I don't think, I think you, it's bad. I don't think you get them on your lock screen, but if you have the phone open. Um, yeah, I think they're it's they're like careful a, with the notifications. Yeah. It's not so like super spammy. they kind of ex- yeah they want to do it in a way where you are free to like open the thing. So right. I think you're right, and they're yeah they're not permanent at all. Like they don't like they, right, they go away. Away. They don't they don't update the dock or the, the are they uh, just icon. An app, maybe like they only no, show they're outside the app, the app though. Oh, oh yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's like an OS level. It's it is an OS Crazy. level notification. I didn't know you had that kind of control over them. Yeah, that that's probably the only example I can think of where they are showing like and changing state of something instead of like something has been completed or yeah start something or to it's do this really it's interesting like, here's passive information as a push notification but yeah i think you know you just have to understand that like switching away from the defaults has cost mm-hmm. and so if the benefits override it awesome but like people that just go away from the defaults and don't really think about all of the the shoulders of giants that you you're now choosing to not build on i think that typically doesn't work out very well so you guys exchanged a glance earlier when you talked about the hiring designer process at Gumroad. You do a design challenge. Yeah. Can you talk more about that and like why why that's a thing? Yeah. So the design challenge is a thing, one, because it requires time from the candidate. So one of the okay. best filters is like you care, you know, if you want to work at Gumroad, like you should care a lot about Gumroad. Could and you give an problem. example of like what the design challenge is or what one of them is? Sure. So one of them is redesign one I'll, I'll i'll give examples of what they were maybe okay. um so one was like redesigning the blog so we have like certain you know we have a lot of essay format type blog posts like sort of expositions on certain things that are meant to help the creator and the blog was initially designed for like feature updates like really short posts with images and things like that and so we were like basically like hey if you redesign the blog post knowing this new information that like we want it to be like almost like medium e in certain contexts like how would you approach that problem and that was that would be a design challenge and it would you know probably take the average designer maybe between one and three hours to do like a first run through of it and so yeah it was it was kind of a combination of like it requires time so it self-selects people out of the process um which i think is great Two, it's a real problem it's not just like a made up thing. It's like a thing that in six months we will solve ourselves. So it's very easy for us to be like, that is what we want to do mm-hmm. or not versus like some, you know, if you have a box and you need to put all these pens in a box in this way and like save space, what would you do? I'm like, buy a bigger box. I'm not a pen strategist. <laughs> yeah. <I'm> just- <laughs> and then, yeah, I, I think those are kind of the two big reasons we do them is to like get a really good sense of like the fact that you care about Gumroad and the fact that you would be a very good fit 
like really quickly. And a lot of, you know, like we'll have great phenomenal designers like that don't go through just because they don't have like a style that like they, their style is very different from the one that we're looking for. Or I think design, especially over engineering, like design is very opinionated, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so you end up with like, oh yeah, it's not a fit. And like fits are two ways. So it's probably not a fit on either way because you don't want to be super constrained by the Gumroad style guide as well as a designer. I think design I think. styles are weird. I don't know where I fall on this, but some quote like designers shouldn't have a style. Like they you, should be. You designed. have a very specific style. No, I don't. But that, that shouldn't be recognizable with the stuff I ship at Facebook, right? Correct. Like, my s- style should not transfer into the work I do there. Like, maybe some of my, the way I think, but like, for example, if someone has a very different style than Gumroad, but they want to work at Gumroad, they it shouldn't carry over. abandon their style and like only bring over the, the problem solving and the design thinking, not necessarily like the aesthetic that whatever they carry around. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like being a ghostwriter. Right, like if you if you if you go going back to writing and Drake, uh, and Drake, oh dear, um, yeah, like if you're a good, yeah, let's, let's careful, he's let's gonna go with that this one. track. <laughs> yeah, if you're if you're a good a ghost songwriter, you should be able to rap in Drake's voice, and no one should ever know that he was not the one that did that. Yeah, because and and that's a skill of a good ghostwriter. Right. A bad one is like you write it and it's amazing, it's still great. Really, like Kanye like, wrote it. Clearly, <laughs> seriously, yeah. yeah, it's clearly this Eminem. Obvious, yeah. Stop singing about blood on the leaves. I get it. It's Kanye. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you know, you, I think that's important. I think voice, like bringing your voice, should only happen if it improves the product. Right. So if you have certain ideas, but yeah, like my goal is, you know, I want the best Facebook app on my phone. So like, I yeah, I want I want whatever is going to make that happen. I don't care. Like, oh, you designed it, so it happened to be skeuomorphic but he designed it so it happened to be like plain ideally if two like two different designers approached it the solution should be the same because it's the best solution Mm -hmm. even if they have like very different like on their you know their personal websites are totally different and i totally have a personal style and i try to i'm sure gummer has a lot of that because i was just the one that started gummer design um but yeah totally i even today i probably approached both of those things quite differently that's why I love looking at designers' personal websites where it's not like a WordPress thing like they actually made it yeah because that's that's their style, even if they work at somewhere like Google. Yeah. Or, or I think people overdo that sometimes. Like they'll go out of their way to make it something that isn't their style, which is really frustrating. Because I love getting like just a look inside how people just think at their default. But they're like, "It's me. I can literally do anything. I should do everything I can." <laughs> like, yeah, and then they end up with something that is like seventeen different websites. Put it's into just one a monstrosity. Or they redesign it every two months. Yeah, that's a common trap. Yeah, I think on a big team, especially like Facebook, if every designer designed their stuff in their style, what a hodgepodge. Like, it would look like Snapchat. That'd be bad. <laughs> it would look like Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, then put in a blender. If you give George Kedenberg something to do, he's going to, like, parse would look like Linkmoji. <laughs> that's not a bad well, thing. There's, no, yeah, different. I mean, that's the other thing about, like, you know, the personal versus, like, what you do for work is, like, with personal, you don't necessarily have business goals. Right. So if I had a business goal of like, oh, I want my blog to be like super highly, co- you know, converting or whatever. Uh, I don't know what that means, but I would design it probably differently. But like a lot of, yeah, it's like I just want to have fun with my personal website. You can kind of go a little bit more crazy and like you're basically making like a painting version of, you know, with, with your with your keyboard mm-hmm. and, and mouse. It becomes art instead of like functional. Yeah, design. exactly. It's art versus this is something that like with Gumroad, I think all the time about because we every single creator is 
managing this relationship with making art and then also trying to build a business. And it's, I think it's fascinating. I keep thinking of Jeremy Goldberg's personal website. Like if you're viewing it in Safari and portrait, it's fine. And if you turn it landscape, he just has a media query that says like, you're holding your phone wrong or something. That's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> I like, mean, that's example, just super opinionated, but Facebook obviously he, was, do that. he does like <laughs> a business goal. Right? Hold your phone like a decent human being or something, something like that. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it, that's the other thing is you can like, you know, you can have opinions and yeah. put them onto people. But when you're designing for work, I have to take away, like I might have opinions that actually disagree with the design style that I might be going for, but I know it's the best direction because it's for this group of people. Right. It has right? to be the company's opinion. Yeah, it has to be. Exactly. Yeah. You're speaking on behalf of the company. And so, yeah, it should be the company's opinion. And the company's opinion might be, you know, it's subtly different than mine, which is fine. I th- and I think it's a skill of a good designer to be able to compartmentalize that. Yeah. You know? So that's where the design challenge for you is is important to see people that can remove that part of themselves and say, like, all right, these are the problems that Gumroad has. I'm willing to fit into this style and, and yeah. solve the actual problem. Exactly. Aesthetic aside. And then they, yeah, and then typically they'll have like one or two things that are like really good insights on like mm. how they approach a certain problem, maybe slightly outside of our defaults, but like, oh, that's like a new type of button that we might want to think about, or like some new loading state that we hadn't thought about, or some new way of including a font that isn't Helvetica on our site in, in a way that doesn't seem like weird, whatever. And then, yeah, and then there's other ones, like, for example, I think one of the actually really great challenges is like, now now it is, but six months ago, it wasn't our our homepage was not mobile formatted and so it's like mobile format our homepage and like to do that you basically have to fit very much within our design style but then like every at every decision where you're like trying to you know cut costs basically in terms of pixels being used you have to make decisions on like what's the right way to go and you'll end up with people that just like literally take our homepage and like make it super 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 long people that are like really good at cutting things out but they cut out the wrong things and you're like that's actually pretty important to our product. Why did you take that out? And like that gives you a good sense of their like sort of emotional intelligence. And then, yeah, and then you have someone who you're like, oh, that's perfect. We should just ship that. Let's hire that guy. And that's what we do. Like, end up trying <laughs> and that's to. that's what happens. So okay. I don't know if this should end up in the final show, but we don't talk much about when things don't work out. So do you mind if I bring that up? Sure. I, I did a design challenge for Gumroad when I was trying to leave Shop Savvy. I did a design challenge. It was for variance. And you sent me Kyle's, uh, Kyle's page, mm-hmm. Kyle Webster, selling variants of a package. Mm. If I yeah, recall. yeah. I, I actually still haven't gotten feedback on that, so I, we should talk at some point. But I think, like, I, I copied button styles mm-hmm. specifically, and then I forgot to do the back end. I forgot to turn in my back end draft with the front end. Oh, one. really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, okay. Oh, that's pretty dumb. cool. The challenge included, like, how's this going to look for the consumer well, and the, the creator? Well, all it yeah. said was, that's pretty cool. what if you could sell variants? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's, I guess, yeah, another part of what I like about the challenges is they're not super constrained. Right. Because a lot of it is, like, you know, we're not just hiring visual designers. We're hiring designers. Product designers, I guess, is maybe what people call them these days. But, like, what if a creator could do this? And then there's like all of these questions that you have to ask and answer your, basically yourself, yep. you know? See, some people would be like, hey, what about this constraint? And we might say yes, no, or whatever. But a lot of people, they're like, okay, well, I've used Gummer before. I've bought something. So this is probably the constraints mm-hmm. that they want. And yeah, they have to think about it from both sides. So not just the creator side, That's cool. 
but also the consumer side. And certain problems are super easy on one side and not the other. Like the variance yep. one, which is actually, funnily enough, we're just now actually building. Mm-hmm. And so we have a design for it, finally. And it was actually one of the hardest. Like there was a lot of work that went into that. That was really difficult. The easy part of it, it was actually the consumer side. Definitely. It's so easy. Like from the get-go, I was like, okay, I know how to get this done. Yeah. Like, like I know exactly how it would look because I've bought something on Gumroad and like mm-hmm. I would expect that's a lot of it as being a designer is like, what would the user expect? And then just give it to them. Well, they would have expected that if you did this, this showed up or whatever. And so like that part is easy, but then like going into the creator side for that specific thing, you know, being able to sell variants of a product within one product, that one gets super difficult, super complicated because you have like, you're basically creating different instances of the same product within like a single page. And then you can like, you know, how do you manage the files? How do you, do they have different prices? Do they have different names and descriptions? All of these are like, none of these are dis- really visual design. It's all like- That's product. Product. Yeah. But that's what we're hiring for. And so mm-hmm. it's like a cool way to like get someone to like think a little bit more. Because this is the other thing is you might be amazing at taking something super visual and making it amazingly beautiful. Uh, and this is actually Evan, one of the co-founders of Pinterest told me this. He's like, making things pretty is easy. Like that's one of the easiest parts of my job is making pretty buttons. Everything outside of that is way more complicated. Like, you know, figuring out the entire place of which the, where the button should even be is much harder than making the button pretty. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that can make pretty buttons, but there's very few people or, you know, a lot less that can like think of the right flow for a creator to really understand this problem and think about it intuitively. Um, and so we ended up, I think, with a really good design and a really good approach for it, though, you know, we haven't shipped it yet, so it might change once we ship it a little bit. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of, and this is like you know, it's the same thing. It's like a lot. It's it's very opinionated. It's yep. you know, like it's just a super, and it's hard because it's a, it is a very personal thing to be like, we don't want to work with you or whatever. But it's not like we don't want to work with you because like we don't like you as a human being or something like that. It's just like we don't think there's a fit. Yeah, well, that's what 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 is the success rate? Maybe off the top of your head, if you have it. Yeah, I mean, the success rate from the design challenge is probably like ten percent, maybe. Wow. To get to like the next stage of the interview process, which is like typically meeting a designer at Gumroad in person or like coming on site or something like that. It's pretty, it's yeah, it's pretty low. Got it. Okay. I don't have any other questions about that. Awesome. (laughs) No, I just, I thought it was really cool because it forced me to go into the back end, create a seller profile, like learn what was already there, spend some time on it. It was was really cool. Like Mm -hmm. that, that was something I didn't initially think about i was like oh shit (laughs) yeah yeah that's the other thing that it takes a lot of like how do you think about edge cases and how do you yeah edge cases for example like that's something that engineers are very privy to right like the first thing an engineer will probably ask is like how does this look if they don't do what you wanted them to do and Mm -hmm. they entered an a when they when you expected a number or where they didn't enter anything and just hit the save button and like a lot of designers like oh let me get back to you. But <laughs> like the really good ones, the people, and not good necessarily, but they have the right amount of experience. They design for those. And they're like, this is how it looks in this state. This is how it looks while it's loading. This is how it looks once the result is back. This is what happens if they try to do this weird thing. Loading states and empty states. Yeah. So yeah, loading states, empty states, unhappy states, unhappy cases, we call them. Uh, <laughs> unhappy. Yeah, so there's the happy state, which is they do the thing that you wanted them to do, and then the unhappy ones, which is like, <laughs> dude, come on. <laughs> the, the why'd you try state? to pay <laughs> octopus for this product instead of you know 10 bucks people just, <laughs> it's like that people qa engineer friends. walks into a bar joke exactly it's the qa is one beer here is zero beers nine 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 beers lizard <laughs> squibble <laughs> <laughs> exactly 
what, and this is the other thing is like a lot of designers, just cause you know, when you're an engineer, you're typically working on products, software, you're a software engineer. If you're a designer, you could be in an ad agency. You could have worked on software before. You might never have. You might be working at a design, like a, you know, all of these different hardware, like all of these different things. So a lot of it is just the fact that like these people haven't ever thought about unhappy cases because they've never had to before. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of the interview process that comes out of that design challenge as well is like you very quickly get an understanding of like, okay, they've, they've worked within this system before because they've thought about the case in which like the internet doesn't return back like the proper thing you know because like you know if you've if you've worked on like elevator design you never have to think about what if the elevator doesn't work because at that point someone else's problem (laughs) but you know if you're a designer yeah like you have to every form has you know potential like the first thing i do when i go to a like a new startup like launches or i want to try out a new service i literally just go to the sign up form and i just hit save or submit or log in or whatever and like don't fill out anything and i just see what happens And it's mind-boggling to me that, like, some of those things, it's like, you know, sometimes it's, like, literally, like, eight bullet points of, like, username, not valid, email, not valid. Like, literally no human... No one tried it. No one did that. Yeah. Or they did that and they didn't care enough or something, you know? But, like, that's crazy. Like, it should... First of all, like, all that stuff should be in line, so we should only highlight the first field and say something in a human voice, not, like, email is blank. It should be, like, hey, you forgot to type in an email. Right. Um... And it's just like clearly like they're using the defaults in the wrong way, which like the defaults of like Rails is just like put all of them <laughs> yeah. in like you know those like yeah. those p tags at the top, right? And they're all red. God. And like you see them on the website on the on the web sometimes, and you're like, damn, no one tried that. The counter argument would be they didn't waste time. Yeah, and that's fine too. Out the edge cases at the start at launch. Yeah, like and that, that's also that's that's totally fine as mm-hmm. well, right? Like if like one of the things I remember is like the deleting a a pin on on pinterest was the worst thing in the world like it was like totally broken ui and it was just not worth fixing like for you know six months or so we knew about that it was like the worst ui in the world and it had like a loading indicator that i think we like just copy pasted from facebook or something it was like miserable because we needed the function we needed the like people needed the ability to delete pins but like almost no one did it and so we just built the feature like you know shipped it and then like just forgot about it. And we knew it was bad, but it was just like not worth making better. Right. It's, you know, and I'm, I'm sure now it's beautiful. We're running out of time, but the one last thing, I think I've heard you talk a little bit about this in another interview, but it'd be cool to hear maybe an update. You were very early at Pinterest, right? First designer? Yeah. Uh, but you left also not too long after, within a year, mm-hmm. um, and started Gumroad. Uh, how do you look back on that experience of like where Pinterest is now and like, do you ever second guess that decision to to leave and start your own company? Do you miss what you did at Pinterest? Or I'm just curious how that gels in your mind as you see Pinterest. Yeah, I mean, when I left, funnily enough, like when I left, I thought about it from the context of like, if Pinterest ends up becoming a $10 billion company, would I regret leaving? And it ended up becoming a $10 billion company, you know, for, you know, whatever low chance that was. But you, you know, when I was there, like we all believed that we all were like, I remember many meetings where it was clear that Pinterest, it was growing, like basically doubling every month. It was insane. And the engagement was insane. So like everyone within the company was like, this is totally going to work. Or maybe I was just being naive and no one else was thinking that. And I was just like, I just was like, got lucky. You were pretty young. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, and then the other part for me was like, you know, someone, someone, I don't know who quoted this, but like, you know, 
what do the things that you're going to regret not doing. Don't do the things that you like, you know, and so that was a big part of it for me was like, I want to like this whole path that I got on when I was like 14, 15 was like, I want to like build products and get really, really, really good at making lots of products for people that I think are valuable. And I want to spend my time doing that in ways that no one else would be able to. So if I wasn't there, like that product wouldn't have been built. And Pinterest at that point was built and was doing really, really well. And it was going to be successful. And so if I'd left, I felt like that would have still happened. And so I would should spend my time on something else. That's a simplification of the of the decision. But like a lot of it was just like, well, how can I best spend my time? You know, the other thing people say is if you had a gazillion dollars, what would you do? And it was starting Gumroad. It was doing what I do today. And I don't I don't regret it at all. I think sure, like financially in the short term at least, like there's a little bit of money to give up on the table, you know. But I have a lot of time to to do that. And then also, you know, there's all the stats of like, you know, how money affects your happiness and it turns out not that much. So and it turns into a story that I get to tell people. It's a really good story. I think so far it's been worth it. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing. Sweet. Yeah. It's, I'm glad we finally got to have you on. I yeah. I think you were in our first six that we sent out in like a, a mass email. <laughs> Hilariously. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Is there anything you want to plug before we go? Um, yeah. If you're a creator, you should check out Gumroad. Let me know what you think. If you think it's terrible, uh, gumroad.com. And then I'm on Twitter at SHL. That's Are about you it. hiring? Yep. Cool. Yeah. And then my email is my first name at my at gumra.com. Cool. Easy. Sweet. Thanks, man. Sweet. Thanks, Thanks for coming you. on. This is the end of uh, season one of Design Details. Season two starts on Monday. What? Yeah, all the cool podcasts do seasons. I want to do seasons. Okay, so that was <laughs> fifty three episodes per season. <laughs> fifty three per season, and season two begins next week. <laughs> Perfect. We hope you've enjoyed listening along. Season one was was a real blast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the journey with us. Sahil was a great closer. But until season two, uh, what can you do, do in the meantime? Uh, there's there's a lot of time to fill between now and Monday. We would really appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. Just pull out your phone or your computer, leave us a rating or write a review. It both help. Basically what it does is it tells iTunes that, that you're listening, you're responding to the show. That'll move us higher in the rankings. And the goal of that is to just help reach more designers and developers to join in on this conversation. The higher we go, the more likely we are to show up on the front page of the tech section, which is kind of our section. Hilariously, if you go into technology slash podcasting, we're almost always at number one. I don't know why we're on podcasting as a topic but i think it's funny well it's because everyone that's listening leaves us awesome reviews so thank you if you have if you haven't i would really appreciate it conversely you can also tweet at us we love to chat hit us up at design details fm or at spec fm on twitter our dms are open as well if you want to just chat privately before we go wanted to thank our two awesome sponsors for this week wake and wake so what's wake Bryn? wake is this tool i've been using I think you've used it too. Yeah, no, no, I've definitely... Yeah, I've used it. One of the hardest things in design is communicating with people, getting these ideas out of your head. Wake helps you do this. It helps you share at every stage of the process, and it helps you explain what is going on to others, take feedback, take criticism, and grow and improve. And it helps the team communicate better. So how does it work? You can take screenshots of work in progress. You can take photos with their iOS app of, say, a whiteboarding session or sketches. All of these images go into a web dashboard or, or their app, and you can have comments alongside all this. So you can share work in progress with your team. Everyone can have a discussion around it, raise questions, share thoughts, all in line. So what do you do to get on Wake? It just launched yesterday. I've never been to the website before. Uh, just go to wake.io. 
first of all, they have an awesome video, which you should watch. Um, it's like the center button. Just kind of explains what it is. Uh, but you can also sign up for free. Uh, they have a 30-day trial. Get started with your team. Uh, invite your team in and, and start sharing work in progress. I think sharing work in progress is one of the most valuable things you can do as a designer anyways. 100%. And Wake makes it effortless to do. It's actually fun to do. It's, it's negative effort that way. We're super happy to support Wake and we are really uh, appreciative of them supporting us as well. So go to wake.io and try it free for 30 days. Thanks once again to Wake for sponsoring the show twice. That's it for season one. We'll see you at season two on Monday. phones that connect to the internet i like to consider that the true birth <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly it's like a metaverse when is your cell phone contract date <laughs> that's your it's birth like you're just now. a caterpillar <laughs> and then you get a phone and then you turn into a butterfly amazing <laughs> though fun fact apparently caterpillars and butterflies have two like they're two different lives like they they share zero memory so like they're it's basically like literally being reborn you like have the same like composition of atoms but like how do they know that I don't know. People do Science. weird. Science, scientists have ways of knowing this. Like they probably like like give them like a, a feeling of pain or something, and then they don't see it transition over. I don't know. But it's like it's just I don't know. It's a weird. They could have just forgotten you guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, then arguably, like then you're you know you're a different person, right? If you have zero memory of your past, you're basically. A well, new what if person. they just forgot That's, that one thing? Yeah, what if that know. doesn't yeah. stick with a caterpillar. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I have no idea. Yeah, so come on. <laughs> God damn it. Tell us the truth. Answer Why the did questions. I reveal this fun fact? It wasn't that fun.